Now we've reached the end of Mark's gospel. Many of us have been traveling through the pages of Mark together. We went at Mark's pretty fast pace until chapter 14, and then we slowed down to his walking pace. And over the past four weeks or so, we've walked through the narrative of the last few days of Jesus' life. And we come this morning to that first Easter Sunday morning, the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to pick up and read from verse 42 of chapter 15. Verse 42 of chapter 15 starts off in the early evening of the Friday night. Jesus died at three o'clock in the afternoon on the Friday. This is the early evening of that Friday, and then we'll work through till Easter Sunday. So verse 42, and when evening, that is of the Friday, had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath was on the Saturday, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. He was surprised because crucifixion was meant to take 12 to 15 hours for the victim to die. And uh, summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed, or literally, fear not. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, we turn to this uh, closing section of Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 42 to 16, 8. 
Now, you'll see in uh, your Bible, if you have a a Bible uh, in front of you or on your phone or whatever, that uh, there is another ending of Mark's gospel that is included, a longer ending that runs from uh, what the editors refer to as verses 9 to 20 of chapter 16. Now, let me just not fudge uh, the issue with that and, and say a little bit about this longer ending. Now, my conclusion, for what it's worth, and I would be standing alongside the vast uh, uh, kind of corpus of, of scholarship and, and preachers on Mark, is that uh, this uh, additional ending is not part of the original Mark's uh, gospel. And for two reasons. First, it is not found in the majority of the early manuscripts of Mark's gospel. So if you uh, were to look at an early manuscript of Mark's gospel, that bit that uh, at the end is not there. Now that's persuasive to a degree, but far more persuasive than that is that as you read through Mark and as you study it, Mark ends in the way at verse 8 that you would expect Mark's gospel to end. The bit that follows is not something that runs with the grain or the feel of Mark's uh, gospel. And you can see why somebody perhaps in the early church wanted to write the bit at the end, because where does Mark's gospel finish? Uh, It finishes, verse 8, trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's not a a kind of neat, powerful, sharp, positive ending, but it's real. And it runs with the reality of the bewilderment and confusion that has existed with the disciples in particular right through Mark. Now, maybe you are sitting here this morning and you are crystal clear on the gospel. Many of us will be. In other words, you believe and see and understand. Maybe you're sitting here and you're against the gospel. But there will be people here who are in this kind of sense of bewilderment and confusion. And I just don't quite know where I stand And that is how Mark finishes his gospel. Now, I'd be happy to chat uh, more to any of you uh, about uh, this uh, ending, but uh, we will finish in verse 8. That's where Mark uh, finished, I believe. Now, first thing I want to say this morning from the passage we read, and it relates in particular to verses 42 to 47, is that Jesus was crucified dead and was uh, buried. Now, the last thing I want to do is patronize us by uh, focusing on this, but Mark does, partly, I think, to, to combat uh, theories that uh, might be purported to suggest that Jesus had not uh, died. Of course, imagine how weak the gospel message would really be if all I could stand and proclaim this morning was resuscitation. 
rather than resurrection. Imagine if the gospel that is proclaimed to the world was based in the last analysis on the fact that Jesus never died. What hope would there be at a graveside? This Monday past, we stood, a number of us, in the Grange Cemetery and buried Anne-Marie Wright. And Andrew Rollinson, doing the funeral, stood at the headstone and said, I am the resurrection and the life. He did not mean that Jesus was resuscitated. He meant that he was died, dead, and alive. Mark makes that clear to us. Jesus died on Friday at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. Mark tells us that a few verses earlier. It is now the evening of the same day, the Friday. And this man, Joseph of Arimathea, that we read of in verse 42, takes upon himself the responsibility of burying Jesus before the Sabbath, which was the next day on the Saturday. And the reason for that is on the Sabbath, that kind of work burying people would have been forbidden. Now, we know little about this man, Joseph of Arimathea, other uh, than the biographical details recorded by the gospel writers. He was a prominent uh, Jew. Mark describes him as a respected member of the council. The council is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. He was one of the kind of uh, leading Jewish religious figures. Now, you might remember just about 24 hours earlier, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was tried by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And Joseph of Arimathea would have sat in that room when Caiaphas, the high priest, condemned Jesus and members of that Jewish ruling council spat on Jesus and mocked him and scourged him in that moment of sheer hostility the Holy Spirit was at work in this man's heart we know that is true because verse 43 Mark describes him as someone who also himself was looking for the kingdom of God. This man saw and understood who Jesus is. One of uh, the Bible commentators wrestles with the question, why was he silent until now? We don't know the answer to that, apart from the fact that The cross is for everybody. All would desert him. But convicted now in his spirit, he, verse 43, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, there's an understatement. This member of the Jewish ruling council had the bottle to go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and effectively declare his loyalty to Jesus. I wonder if Joseph thought when he went to see Pilate, what on earth is going to happen to me? But he did it. 
Mark records nothing about Pilate's view of Joseph. What Pilate is concerned with, and this is what Mark emphasizes, Pilate's concern is whether or not Jesus is dead. The speed of Jesus' death surprised Pilate. He was surprised, verse 44, to hear that he was already dead. And the reason, as I mentioned when we read, is that the whole purpose of crucifixion was a long, slow, and lingering death. Almost always from suffocation. Because the the corpse no longer, or, or the body, the person could no longer raise up their body to breathe. Why had Jesus died quickly? Well, probably because of the savagery of the flogging that he had received. Pilate needed to make sure, so he asks the centurion, the head of the execution squad, had Jesus died? When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the corpse to Joseph. Now, the other gospel writers give us even more details. The Romans went to the bodies to see if they had died in order to break their legs to facilitate their death. They discovered that Jesus was dead already. He was pierced in his side with a spear. He's dead. And the word that Mark uses... Pilate gave the corpse to Joseph. The word corpse is dead. The one thing the Roman authorities were experts in was execution. And you do not need the advances of 21st century science to know the difference between a body that is alive and a corpse. Some of you will have seen a dead body. It is definitively dead. He's dead. And so you see that what Mark is teaching us is not about resuscitation, but about resurrection. And so having obtained permission from the governor, Pilate, Jesus took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in a linen cloth, which is a a shroud, and placed it in what Mark describes as a tomb that had been cut out of rock, a garden tomb, probably Joseph's own tomb, his family burial place, either a natural cave or a chamber cut out of the limestone hillside, space enough to walk around inside. And some of you would have seen these graves in that part of the world. Space around to walk inside. There would be shelves or alcoves in the walls where the dead bodies would be laid. It was normal for the body to be anointed with perfume and spices to prepare for burial. But there was no time for that because the Sabbath was just a few hours away. Sabbath on the Saturday. And so Jesus was put in to the tomb. And a large stone 
far too big for the women, as we will see, to move, was rolled across the entrance. And notice the detail that Mark records in verse 47 of chapter 15. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. In other words, they had been with Joseph as he had taken the corpse off the cross and wrapped it in linen cloths and carried it to the garden tomb. The last thing they saw before the stone was rolled across the entrance, they saw Jesus' corpse lying there. Jesus was crucified, dead, and was buried. One of the great things about these gospel accounts is they are written with such care and attention, and they smack and they cry out so powerfully of eyewitness testimony. Now, on to chapter 16. Jesus was raised from the dead. He was crucified, dead, and buried, but that is not the end, for he was raised from the dead. Let's read again at the beginning of chapter 16. Follow along with me if you have a Bible. When the Sabbath was over, it's now Sunday, full day later, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. That's what they had not been able to do in the normal course of events. They're going to do it on the Sunday now. And very early on the first day of the week, that Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. I think that's why churches have early morning Easter services. You know, it's amazing how many of you have asked me, would, would, we would like to do a service at 6 o'clock on Easter morning. I'm not sure I could manage that. Just to let you know this morning, I was the one person in church that hadn't noticed the clocks had gone back or forward, whichever way. That would have been interesting. Uh, so next year we'll do one at 6 a.m. That's why, because they went early in the morning. So he was alive. And notice the conversation on the way. They were saying to other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance uh, to the tomb? Mary said to the other Mary, look, how on earth are we going to get this stone away? It's just stuff that you would say on the way. It's just real. Maybe there'll be someone in the garden. Maybe there'll be somebody tending a grave. Maybe somebody else will help us roll the stone away. And they would have been crying and all that stuff that goes with grieving. Just a word about the identity of these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. Mary Magdalene was a woman whom Jesus had, had cured of demon possession. That's recorded in Luke's gospel. She's recorded as one of the first witnesses to the resurrection in all four gospels. Mary, the other Mary, the mother of James and Joses, is almost certainly Jesus' own mother. James and Joses are Jesus' brothers. Salome is the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These are the women who come to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. It's not a random group. These are details, eyewitness details recorded. It is the same group of women that Mark records in verse 40 of chapter 15, who watched at a distance as Jesus died on the cross. It is the same group, two of them, Mary Magdalene and Jesus' mother, who had gone to the cross, taken the corpse down and taken it to the tomb 
on the Friday evening with Joseph of Arimathea. And now the three of them, the two Marys and Salome, are coming to anoint his body in accordance with Jewish custom. Now read with me chapter 16 and verse 4. And you just cannot do this justice. Try and allow God to just arrest you as he would have then with the sheer astonishing drama of what they were about to not see. And looking up, verse 4, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, It's an angel, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. And these wonderful words, He is not here. He is not here means he is not lying as a dead corpse. He is risen. I think the words, He is not here, are as powerful as He has risen. He is not lying in a tomb. He is gone. He is risen. He is alive. Consider the evidence, the witness of Scripture. Three times in chapter 8, 9, and 10, just a few months earlier, Jesus had said to the disciples, the Son of Man must die, and after three days he will be raised to life. When he said that to the disciples, they hardly listened to the first bit, and by the time he got to the second bit, their ears were shut. Three times he said he would rise. The witness of Scripture, the words of Jesus, he did. There is nothing random in these events. It is all part of God's controlled, set purpose in the outworking of human history. The Son of God laid down his life And the Son of God, with the Spirit of God within him, reversed the processes of death and was raised once again to life, as he said. Then the witness of the angel. What is the angel's explanation? Verse 6. He is risen. He is not here. Three times in Mark's gospel, a divine voice breaks into the narrative. It hardly ever happens in the Bible. Three times in Mark, one at his baptism, God, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Second at the transfiguration, again God, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And now inside the empty tomb, the voice of the angel, the messenger of God, do not be alarmed. Literally, fear nothing. He is risen. He is not here. What wonderful words of the angel. Just 
they speak right into the very darkest recesses of the human soul that fears death. Fear nothing. He's alive. The witness of Scripture, the witness of the angels, the witness of the woman. These women played such a significant role. They were around the cross as he died. They were around the tomb when they put him in it. And here they are in the tomb to anoint him. The first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. It's just a wonderful divine trump card. You just would not have women in the ancient world as witnesses to something as significant as this. And it's almost as if God is saying, if this is not true, there is so much evidence to discount this, and it survives, and people all over the world and in history have believed it because it smacks of authenticity. They were the witnesses. This is fact and not fiction. Somebody after the first service uh, who is just coming along and kind of investigating Christianity said something very striking to me. They'd never heard a minister claim that Jesus really did rise from the dead. What an astonishing thing to see. I was kind of angling as to where they've been. Gosh! That it was a kind of faith story. You know, heaven help that minister. This is fact, not fiction. It rings like fact and not fiction. And of course, finally, the witness of the empty tomb. He's not there. He's alive. Now, if you're not yet convinced that he died and that he's alive, Sam will have another go tonight. But Sam will have a go like me, by opening up this book where the people who were there wrote down what they saw. Now, as we come towards the end of this and Mark's gospel, let me say a little bit about the message of the resurrection. To sum up the message of the resurrection, well, it is a wonderful message. I have to say that it it cuts as a wonderful message here in church this morning. I have to be honest with you, it cuts even more powerfully when you stand over a body going into a grave or in the crematorium. It's just got a sharper edge to it there. In raising Jesus from the dead... What did it mean? It meant that what he achieved on the cross had a kind of rubber stamp of divine approval for all time. The cross did forgive you. The cross did wipe the slate clean. 
The cross did remove the wrath of God for all eternity that was on your head onto his head. It's gone. Where is the wrath of God? Where is the judgment of God if you are a believer that pertains to your sinfulness as a man or a woman? Where is that wrath? Is it kind of stashed away in a kind of divine heavenly storehouse? It is extinguished, evaporated. At the moment Jesus died, it is no more. It vindicates his death and it promises life in the Spirit now and everlasting life beyond the grave. What it means literally is this. Because Jesus is alive and you trust and believe in him, you are forgiven and reconciled to God. And when you die, your soul is immediately in the presence of God. When you watch somebody who is a Christian go from life to death and become a corpse, you literally, physically, almost watch the evacuation of their soul. It's very moving to see. and Frightening. Soul is with God, their body is dead. One day, when the Lord Jesus returns, bodies will rise out of the earth, or out of a thousand bits in the world of the ashes world. I don't know how God's going to do that, but I trust him absolutely to do it. Bodies will rise, physically, literally, as materially as Christ's body. That's what it means. It's a wonderful message, wonderful in the sense of the most important thing you need to know. It's not wonderful as in, oh, happy day. I've not been to too many funerals where we sing, oh, happy day. But it is a happy day when you trust Jesus. And it's a message for everyone. How do we know? Well, Joseph of Arimathea. The Jewish religious leader, it is for him. The Roman centurion who supervised his execution, who said, surely this is the Son of God, it is for him. It is for a Jew, it is for a Gentile, it is for all the unnamed people who surrounded Jesus in his life. It is for you, and it is for me. It is for men and women, black and white, rich and poor. It is for those who speak English and those who don't. I always love it when I tell people that Jesus never spoke English. He didn't. Gospel is for all. And around the cross... All sorts of people put their faith and trust in him. Don't worry. That'll go live on the internet. Don't worry. I always think that uh, really gifted preachers should make up some one-liner at that point about, well, there's a wake-up call for somebody here.
The gospel is a wonderful message. It really is. And, and I implore you, I implore you to contemplate your death. The person who will stand at the head of your grave, will they say, I am the resurrection and the life? Will they say it with meaning and truth and power for you? Will your soul at that moment be with God and will your body be raised to be with him? It's a message for all. Go and tell my disciples who will tell the world. And Peter. Notice these words, and Peter. Tell Peter. Tell Peter. I know he just bombed it. Tell him. Tell him I love him. Tell him the gospel is for him. Maybe you are the and Peter. You never thought the gospel was for you. And, uh, of course, go and tell the disciples that I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And what does he say to them in Galilee? He commissions them to take the gospel to the world. And here we are. Now, finally, let me ask you to consider responses to the message of the resurrection. Um, two words, I guess, that might sum up Mark's gospel as powerfully as anything else is fear or faith. I think they're great words, in a sense, to land the plane with. Fear or faith. And let me articulate these words, not in the sense of fear or faith in Jesus, but fear or face, faith in the face blah, of death. One of the great marks of our age is the denial of death. We live in a death-denying culture. We really do. We use words like passed away or in another room. Fear of death or faith in the face of death. Fear of Jesus or faith in him. Fear of all eternity that stretches before you or faith in the one in whom you will spend all eternity with. Fear or faith. Maybe you're in this kind of middle ground which is trembling and astonishment had seized them. And that's a, a, a description at the end of Mark of reality. And, and if it's a kind of description of someone who is coming under kind of conviction from God that this is real and important and they need to do something about it. Fear or faith. And that conviction yields you one way or the other. So as we leave Mark's gospel, here are the people of fear. Judas, who betrayed him. And standing with Judas, all who reject Jesus, the words of Jesus to them, it would have been better had you never been born, so you should be afraid. 
the religious establishment. Religion is not wrong. Worldly religion is wrong. The kind of minister who says to someone the resurrection is not real. You should be afraid. And the the bystanders who stood around the cross and either mocked him or just doubted or just didn't get around to doing anything about it, who watched Jesus die, it kind of moved them that day, but by the next day. Or people who come along and they listen to the gospel in an Easter Sunday morning service and it kind of moves them for a moment. But they don't do anything. These people should be afraid. And then the side of faith. Joseph of Arimathea, who risked his neck because he knew that Jesus was the Son of God. The Roman centurion who saw that he was God. All these unnamed disciples, ordinary folk who believed in him. The woman who touched his cloak because she believed. Faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of these narratives concerning the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Fear or faith in the face of death. Fear or faith in the face of Christ. We hear his words from earlier in the gospel. The time has come. Repent and believe the good news. Lord, we pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would lead any of us who have not yet done so to repent, to turn conscious of our sin to Christ in whom salvation is to be found and believe the good news. And it is good news. It is good news that Christ is risen. It is the best news. Help us, Lord, to believe, to be men and women of faith, no longer of fear, to trust him with all our hearts. Thank you for the glorious message of Easter morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.